0: Welcome proud members of the present to another episode of the Prime Philosophy podcast. I'm your host Nick Horderbaum and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the firefighter wellness program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primelocity.com UFF to get started. My guest on the podcast today is Annie Duke. You know her as the 2004 World Series of Poker bracelet winner and from her national best-selling book, Thinking in Bets. Annie's latest book, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices is available now and you can find the link in the show notes. Annie's also the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve lives by empowering students through decision skills education. And as a former professional poker player, Annie won more than $4 million in tournament poker before retiring from the game in 2012. Annie, thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Thank you for having me, Nick.
0: Your older brother and dad never let you win when playing Oh Hell or Bridge. Talk to me about this lesson in Tough Love.
1: Well, first of all, you just, you say Oh Hell like everybody knows what that game is. (laughs) Oh my gosh! What a great question to start. I have to say I've not been asked that question, so I always appreciate it when someone catches me off guard. <laughs> Thank you. Um, first of all, let me let me explain what Oh Hell is. Um, oh Hell is a game which is uh, I, I would call it a, a little bit of a transition to bridge. So uh, you start off, you get dealt eight cards, and then there's bidding. Um, and there's a, there's a Trump suit, meaning that there's a like if spades are Trump, that means the two of spades would take the ace of any other suit or the king of any other suit. It just means that it, it trumps it mm-hmm. um, so that you get the trick. But anyway, so you turn over a card, you figure out what Trump is. And then let's say you have three players, um, each of you bids for how many tricks you think you're going to take. And the rule is that if you have eight cards in your hand, that, that number can't add to eight.
2: Mm.
1: So, so like if the first person bid two and the next person Bid four the last person would not be allowed to bid two, uh, and you if if you happen to make exactly your bid, uh, you get a bonus of ten points, um, and if you don't make your bid, you just get the number of tricks that you took. And you it's an interesting game because you start off dealing eight, and then you go five, four, three. Um, sorry, you go eight. You start off bidding eight, and then you go seven on the next round, six, five, four, three, and then you go, go back up to eight. So whoever has the most points at the end wins. It's actually a really amazing game for a couple of things. One is really understanding, you know, how do you deal with hidden information? Like how do you sort of figure out what people hold in the same way that bridge does, you have to sort of figure out where cards are sitting. What are you understanding about what the other person is holding by the way that they bid, which obviously is a lot of information. Um, and then you, you also have to think about what the, what the order of the play of your cards are gonna be, because it really matters. So you're sort of trying to set yourself up for the future. And while there's no betting element, obviously, this this was a really good training ground for thinking about poker. But to the question that you actually asked me, now having explained what oh hell is, um, I, no, I was never allowed to win. And it was, you know, the thing was that my dad obviously was like a middle-aged man. I mean, when, when we were playing, he was in his 30s. And then my brother was two years older than me. And, you know, two two years older, when you're an adult, doesn't make any difference, but if you're seven and your brother is nine, the gap in your cognitive capabilities is huge, and you can add on top of that that my brother is just a really, really, really talented games player, in all senses. By the time he was sort of in his, I think his late teens, he was already a master at chess. Uh, you know, and he was reading big tomes on on chess openings and endings and middle games and so on and so forth. I mean, he's he's really smart. Cool. So I, you know, it was kind of a sad thing for me. And, and honestly, like when I play stuff with my kids, yeah, particularly when they were little, you know, I would lay off a little. little you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, let, me, let me help my child's ego along. I mean, I'm not going to be crazy and just like allow them to win everything to give them a weird view of the world. But certainly they're going to win some and I'm going to lay off. And that was not my father's philosophy. I I don't put any of that on my brother because he was nine. Like obviously he wasn't, he wasn't thinking that deeply about it. Uh, But my dad loves, loves to win. And what I think is really hilarious about it is that my father, what he always used to say was that he felt like it was really important for his children to feel like they had earned it to sort of bump up against that wall of not being able to win and figure out sort of how to break through it. So you know, he had this very sort of philosophical, like, as if he had really thought this through, like, I'm really going to help my kids become better thinkers, and so on and so forth. But then my brother and I both have these stories that as a teenager, my father had taught my brother chess. And I think around when my brother was 14, which really tells you something about my, how good my brother was at chess. Um, he beat my father in a game. And, you know, I I, I think that You know, maybe my dad thought that was a little bit of a fluke or something. So they played another game, which my brother won again. And then that literally, I'm not kidding, is the last game of chess my brother and father (laughs) have ever played. Not not by my brother's choice. My father never played with him again. And then something very similar happened to me. When I was 16, I beat my father at Scrabble. And that was the last time the Scrabble board (laughs) ever came out. So my brother my father had this really nice philosophical reason, but I think it literally was just my father does not like to lose. Uh, so there you go.
0: Well, thank you for sharing how to play Oh hell. I'm going camping this weekend. So I'm going to have to try to pick that up.
1: You know, it's, it's actually, it's, it really is. It's like a super, it's a super, super fun game. Aces are high in the game, just FYI. Um, and, uh, it's just like, and it, it's this really interesting thing. Like if you make your bid dead on, then you get 10, but if, if you go over your bid, then you go back to just counting the number of cards that you have. And that, that's actually the key to making that game really interesting you, because you can't kind of like, you know, as they say, under promise over deliver, you get punished for that, which I think is a really, really good thing. And an excellent actually lesson for life that when you're thinking about deploying your resources and anything that you're thinking about, we really, really focus on the kind of sort of overallocation of resources, right? Predicting that you're going to be able to do more and then doing less And we all sort of recognize that as a problem, but we don't recognize the kind of under-delivering, you know, under-promising, over-delivering issue, which is really an under-allocation of resources. And um, what that means is that, you know, we may not actually be sort of maximally using the things that we have available to us in order to get our results. And in fact, that's really encouraged because when we overshoot what we promise, we get really, really big pats on the back. But, you know, under-allocation is just as bad as over-allocation. And what you really want, and this is something that poker teaches you, certainly, and OHEL, is that you want precision. You want to be a really good forecaster. You want to be really well calibrated to, like, what's going to happen in the future. And you don't want to go over or under. And that's one of the things I really love about OHEL, is that you get this big reward for being dead on. Mm -hmm. And you get punished for anything else.
0: And precision in decision making is sort of your world. Should we be taught in K through twelve how to think probabilistically? And where should teachers start who want to do so?
1: Oh my gosh! Well, I, I thank you so much for asking that question. Um, so I actually started a nonprofit. Uh, so I'm gonna I put my money where my where my mouth is on my opinion on this. Uh, so I co-founded a nonprofit called the Alliance for Decision Education, and what we're really trying to do is bring this kind of you know, really the decision skills, education into K through 12. And like, I mean, I would ask you this, Nick, like between, you know, in that time period when you were in school, did anybody actually ever, did you take a class on how to make a good decision and how to think about your habits in, you know, how to think about, you know, if I make a particular decision, what might the future hold for me? Like all, all the things that we think about in terms of decision skills, were you getting those as a class? in school at any point there there are real processes that you can teach for for making great decisions that's the point of how to decide is to really show you you know beyond using your gut or like I I mean I guess kind of a simple pros and cons list which has a whole bunch of problems associated with it how would you really understand what a really good decision process is and there's, there's a few things that go into that one is you have to understand like that you have to explore your options and compare them to each other you have to kind of know what your resources are, you need to think about for any option, what how how might the future unfold? What, you know, what would be the influence of luck? And then you get into, you know, you have to understand probabilities that when something happens, it didn't have to happen. It wasn't a hundred percent to occur. Mm -hmm. So understanding what all the different ways that things could occur, you know, are and how likely those are to occur is really important. And then and then the other thing which I, I think that we don't teach very well is this idea that that things are usually not wrong or right. And that includes not just kind of what you think the future might hold, but also your beliefs. So if you think about the kind of math that we're taught in school, you know, and you think about when you take math tests, you know, it's all things that have a definitive answer. Now, obviously, like when you're in kindergarten, it's really important for you to learn two plus two equals four. That's the basis of anything you're gonna learn later. But I'm not sure that you know once you reach ninth grade that trigonometry is like a super important mathematical skill for people to have. I mean, engineers use it. Yeah, you know, you you kind of need it if you're going to raise a barn, and you used to need it to navigate the seas, although that's now done by computer. Um, but you know, does when was you know tangent and cosine is have these been very important concepts in your life? Like I I assume no. No. And, and the problem is that when you're actually taking a test, there's a right and wrong answer. So we're sort, it's sort of drilled into us all the time that things are either right or wrong and kind of nothing in between. But statistics and probability teaches you a really different way of thinking about the world where it's not about wrong or right. It's about things will happen with some probability or not. Like if we, if we think about the 2016 election, we can see where this lack of education Um, really can can show through in terms of the way that people interpreted the results back to sort of what the polls were saying and what the, the predictions were. So polls are not a prediction of the election. They're a snapshot of if the vote were taken today, what do we think the distribution would be in terms of voters for, say, Clinton or Trump? And you know what we saw was that kind of nationally, it looked like Clinton probably had about a two percent advantage. And then obviously there were other issues, you know, kind of within some polling errors within states. But we we're getting these snapshots of states, and then somebody might take that those polls to build a model of what the likelihood is that one candidate wins or, or another. So so we can think about this like if I take a snapshot of the 2024 election right now through a poll which is who would you vote for today, that's not going to predict very much about 2024. It's too far away. We don't even know who the candidates are. Um, and even with, with this election, we, we know that like a poll taken today is going to be just much less predictive than a poll taken, say, the day before the election, because there's a lot of time and things that can happen in between. But then you have somebody like Nate Silver, who kind of takes all that stuff into account and will build a model which will say, given all this, this data from the polls, how likely is one candidate to win or another? And I think that where he landed was, I, th- I, think, I think Clinton was like 65% to win and Trump was 35% to win. So what that means, you know, if I were to translate that into plainer language, is if you were to run the same election 10,000 times, Right. We could simulate this like we could do like what's called a Monte Carlo simulation or like just, just somehow we could just keep rerunning it. Um, that Clinton would win 65 percent of those elections and Trump would win 35 percent of those elections. So notice what nobody's saying here or at the time nobody was saying was Clinton is going to win the election. Now, there were certainly pundits who were saying that, unlike television, because they were thinking like somebody doing trigonometry, that you have to come up with a yes or no answer. But nobody like Nate Silver or anybody trained in statistics and probability or, or, or decision theory or decision science or what a good decision process looks like would, would, would have been saying that. But they were, what they would say is something like, you know, Clinton is favored to win or she's 65% to win the election. So what I think is interesting is that then you see this translation happen. So Trump wins. And what does everybody do? They say the polls were wrong. That you have to go several steps. The polls weren't wrong the polls were just a snapshot of what the vote was. And then you can't even go to the steps of saying the models were wrong because the model said that 35% of the time Trump was going to win. And if we want to sort of think about, well, how likely was that result? I mean, I can do a thought experiment with you. Okay, so Nick, I'm going to give you a gun and the gun is going to have a hundred chambers and I'm going to put 35 bullets in in it. So there's going to be 65 chambers that are empty and 35 that have bullets in them. Uh, do you want to play Russian roulette? Nope. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, once I put it into real terms, I mean, this is kind of an interesting thing about betting. Once I create some stakes to the, in the matter to you, you immediately revert to understanding that it's not yes or no. That just because that gun has 65 empty bullets in it, that doesn't mean that you're supposed to not end up dead if you play Russian roulette. And that's actually the appropriate way to think about that election, that 35% is a lot. But we automatically want everything to be yes and no. And I think we're really, we're really hurting our kids by not getting this education into K-12 through so that people can start to sort of think in this matter and understand what is a good decision? What does it mean to think probabilistically? How can you think about what the future might hold? How do we understand why things happen the way we do they do? How do we understand our own habits? And how do we understand our own beliefs? which are also in the neither true nor false category. For most of the things that we believe, they're somewhat true, somewhat false, but, but rarely do they sit in, in one or the other category. And I love that social and emotional learning has, has become really part of every K-12 student's education. And what I would love to see is decision education become like social emotional learning and something that's delivered to all kids. And and I honestly think it would lead to a better society.
0: This is so important and that will have an incredible impact. And one thing you've said, the top 500 poker players tend to be brilliant in game theory. How does this help you make better decisions in poker? And is this something that we should be taught in school as well?
1: What game theory is, is decision-making under uncertainty when you have more than one person in the decision. So if we teach good decision-making, we're naturally going to end up teaching game theory. So basically what we can think about is what does it mean decision-making under uncertainty? And we can kind of separate out the difference between chess and poker in order to understand what that difference is. So um, in chess, I can see my opponent's whole position. So I know where every single piece sits. And the other thing that I know is that a piece is not going to move unless my opponent moves it or i move it in other words nobody's going to like roll dice and if they come up seven you know you get an extra bishop and if it's snake eyes it's an automatic checkmate so what that means is that we've we really we've really reduced the influence of two things one is hidden information and the other is luck and, and what that means is that the decision that you make is going to be much more correlated much more highly correlated with the outcome that you see. So if Nick and I play a game of chess and I lose, nobody has seen the moves that either of us made. So all they know is the result. I lost to Nick. They can, you know, it's very reasonable for them if if it's chess for them to say that I must have made worse decisions than than Nick did. But if I'm playing poker and we play together, that's not actually a reasonable assumption. Not, and by the way, obviously I think people would probably make the assumption that, um, you know, that, that I would be better than you, but if it's a random person, if you play a random person and all we know is that you played for like an hour and you, you won the game, you know, you ended up with more chips I actually don't know much about your your decision-making in comparison to the other person's decision-making. And that's because we have this, these two very strong influences. One one is hidden information. I can't see your cards. And the other, of course, is luck that, um, that you could have a hand that's going to win like 98% of the time and 2% of the time you're going to lose. And that 2% could have happened. And I don't really know because you don't, all you know is it's going to occur 2% of the time and you have no control over when you're going to see that 2%. Similar to Clinton and, and Trump, you know from the prediction markets that Trump's going to win 35% of the time. And if you don't know on that particular election, on that particular day that that election is held, if that 35% is going to happen, you know, and we can imagine if the election were held the next day, Clinton might have won, or if it was the day before, Clinton might have won. So... Um, So once we bring this uncertainty in, that's where we get into the world of game theory, which is how are we thinking about how do I make decisions when not only do I not know the other position the other players' position, but I also don't know how they might react to their position. And there's also a really strong influence of luck. And that starts to get into the realm of game theory. So if if we're teaching, we don't need to get into like the deep math of game theory with with kids, obviously, unless you know, they're, they're farther along in high school and it's something that interests them. But we can get into the kind of thinking that game theory is getting you to, which is how do, you, how do you make decisions in a world where you can make a perfectly good decision and have a bad outcome? You could make a perfectly good decision and have a good outcome. You could make a perfectly bad decision and have a bad outcome, but you could also make a perfectly bad decision and have a good outcome. And what does it mean as you start to sort of loosen that up and then you combine that with there's other people making decisions that are going to sort of influence your outcomes and you don't necessarily know what their positions are. And this is this is really kind of like the whole ball of wax. And if we can start to unwind how to do well in that situation, which obviously is an amazing description of poker, um, you know, then we can start getting somewhere in terms of getting people to think about better decision making. So, you know, one, one of the things that I really think about is um, how, how, if you're thinking about how are we making decisions during coronavirus, what you start to see is the usefulness, really the really big usefulness of like this type of thinking, getting really, really uncomfortable, sorry, getting really comfortable in the kind of discomfort that most of us feel in uncertainty, because the, the way that I, I think about what's happening with coronavirus is, you know, obviously, we have this huge, imperfect information problem. And we can all feel that, right? The, the shifting landscape is so rapid, like what we thought we knew about this disease in February or March is so different than what we thought, what we think we know now. And we we can suspect that, what we know in, in three months is going to be really different than what we know now. And we're all trying to make decisions kind of like with the information we have at this moment. Mm-hmm. But we know that that may change like really, really quickly. So, you know, as an example, obviously like in February, the, the CDC was saying, you know, oh, you, a mask isn't going to really help you very much. That's for healthcare workers. You don't really need to, to wear one. And then obviously there was a lot more information that uh, became available since then, Um, you know, and now they want you to wear masks or uh, it turns out they're probably pretty effective. Or in March, we didn't know that you could be asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic and be spreading the disease. And now we know that. And that really changes the way you think about your risk because someone who's not obviously sick um, could, could be getting sick. Right? So these are all things like, those are really big deals, those things that have changed. And we certainly feel that you know obviously there's this this ginormous influence of luck um, as you know the wrong bat met the wrong human and mm-hmm. <laughs> boom you know there's you know one hundred and seventy thousand people are, are dead in america now so um, so there's just, there's a lot that has to do with luck as well so what I try to tell people is look this is this is kind first of all, this is a really good test of understanding how do you really make good decisions under these circumstances when there's lots and lots of stuff that you don't know and information is shifting really rapidly and you know there's going to be a really strong influence of luck and people who play poker and who kind of understand this kind of decision making are going to do much better in this environment because they're kind of used to dealing with that. Mm -hmm. But then the other thing I tell them is I try to tell people is when coronavirus goes away, The biggest lesson that you could learn is that that's actually what most decisions look like anyway. It's just kind of amplified right now. And if you can get comfortable with the kind of decisions that you would have to, you know, that you might be making during coronavirus, you're going to be a lot better off when coronavirus goes away because your decision making in general is going to improve.
0: Philip Tetlock says, not knowing is exciting. It's an opportunity to discover. The more that is unknown, the greater the opportunity. But does this ring true even when there are significant financial and health consequences?
1: I think that we want to separate out, you know, by exciting, obviously, we don't want to be thinking about what the really awful effects of the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty right now are, right? Um, You know, as an example, I think it was, I think it was a Columbia University study that showed that if the United States had locked down a week earlier, 36,000 people would be alive today that, that aren't. Mm -hmm. So... These types of environments really create a huge challenge uh, that have real world consequences as you're trying to make subjective judgments without, without very much information. So I I would, I would not call those consequences of that exciting in any way. What I would say is that if you really are willing to say, there's a whole bunch of stuff I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think that most of us say that too little, then, and you also say, my job as a decision maker is to create something for myself that as closely resembles a crystal ball as possible. So what what I mean by that is that what a great decision is, is to say, "I'm, I'm thinking about an option that I wanna choose and you know should i take this job should i not take this job should i marry this person should i not marry this person should i go to this school should i not or in the case of coronavirus like is it should i go to a restaurant do i want to send my child back to school i mean these are obviously very high stakes decisions and as you're considering an option what we really want to do is say what are the possible outcomes that could occur if i choose the if i choose to do this thing and if I think about what those possible outcomes are, what do I think the chances of those occurring are? Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, if I'm thinking about sending my, let's say my college aged child back to school, I could think about a whole variety of different ways that that could turn out. One of which is they get t- sent home within two weeks. Right? So I so I, that's certainly going to be in the set. Uh, and the, the campus actually controls the virus really well. And, and, you know, she stays there for, for the whole time. I, it could be, you know, she stays at school, but they put put all classes online. Like, you know, you can sort of go through what the reasonable possibilities are. And then hopefully you can get some sort of idea of, of what the probability that those might occur is. And, and the better you are at that, right. The more that you're going to have something that looks like a crystal ball, because you're going to get a much more exact view, a much more well calibrated view of what the of what the future might hold and and the better that we can see the future the better we are going to be I mean this is just sort of obvious the better we're going to be at choosing which option um, is best so I think what Phil Tetlock is talking about here is that because we're making decisions under uncertainty the the minute that you acknowledge how little you know combined with your desire desire to get as as clear a view of what the future might hold as possible so you want those two things to collide that creates an exciting opportunity to to really get you to go look for more information Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and the reason why I think that why I think about that as an exciting opportunity is when I think about decisions we can talk about all this stuff with like choosing options and what the outcomes are and you know all this stuff but that whole system is, is sitting, it's like a house sitting on a, a foundation. And the foundation that it's sitting on are your beliefs and knowledge and the facts that you know, because that is what informs everything about the decision. It informs what you think your goals are. It informs what you think your, what your values are. It informs what you believe your resources are that you could put into the decision. It informs what you think your options are. And for any of those options, when we start talking about what do you think the future is going to look like if I choose this particular um, this particular option, then that's going to be driven by your beliefs about what the future might hold. so if we know that that that's what that that house is sitting on, right like it's sitting on this foundation, we know that there are problems with that foundation, and this gets to the heart of the difference between you know. What game theory is, is thinking about, sort of more in a poker like environment than in a chess like environment. Because the two problems with that foundation are one, there are inaccuracies in the things that you believe. Like today, there are lots of things you believe that you're going to find out later. Or if you were omniscient, you would know are not accurate. So let's call those cracks in the foundation. And then the other problem is that the foundation is just kind of flimsy, it's not very broad, meaning that if you were to think about what do you know about the world, it would fit on like the head of a pin but the stuff that you don't know is like the size of the universe right so the only way for us to fix the foundation of every decision that we make is, is actually to go explore the universe of stuff that we don't know and that seems like a really simple solution well i'm just going to go i'm going to you know walk around and then i'll run into other people and they're going to have different perspectives than me and i'm going to run into different information and that you know and then i'm going to process all of that and it's going to cause me to change my beliefs in a direction that makes my beliefs more accurate. But in reality, that's not really what happens. When we interact with the universe of stuff that we don't know, we actually specifically avoid information that might correct our beliefs. And this this expresses itself in confirmation bias or echo chambers that we hear about all the time that we really like to interact with people and information sources that already agree with us, that are gonna certify the things that we already believe. and then, then there's other stuff that happens, like if we do happen to collide with information that disagrees with us, um, we'll, we'll do it in a way to sort of reject the information. So, you know, as an example, like, it, you know, there, if, there aren't a lot of people who support Trump who are watching MSNBC except maybe to hate watch it and vice versa. There aren't a lot of people who don't support Trump who um, are watching Fox News except specifically to hate watch it. Mm-hmm. So, so you're not watching any of that stuff or interacting with the information with an open mind. You're actually interacting with it in a way that you're purposely trying to reject it. So what I, what I think Phil is, is referring to is that when you start to get really focused on really calibrating your forecast, right. And thinking about, I want my predictions about the future to be as crystal ball, like as possible to be as accurate as possible, that gets you to recognize that you don't know enough stuff to be able to get a really perfect view of the future. And then that gets you to go want to go find that stuff out because you sort of shifted the purpose from just trying to sort of certify the things that I believe to actually becoming a really great forecaster of the future. And in order to do that, you have to open your mind and go seeking information that's going to, that's going to really beef that foundation up.
0: And the scientists and you will be excited about that. Where the child and you will be closed-minded,
1: right? Exactly. I, and I and I think that that's I think that that's one of the biggest problems, right? And if we think about a lot of the the kind of stuff that's going on in the environment right now, you know, we have that we sort of have this idea. Oh, you know, the internet came along and we were going to have social media and ways for people to communicate to each other, and this was going to be really great because it was going to it was going to really broaden our information landscape, right? We we're going to be able to interact with all sorts of information that disagrees with us. And it turns out that we're mostly interacting with information that, that agrees with us. Uh, Jay Van Bavel has has shown that in terms of when you look at sort of viral treat, tweets within, say, political party, that the virality doesn't really cross party very much. So it'll be super, super, like if you'd imagine like um, a, a, a sort of a blue net- Network and a red network and you have a tweet that goes viral it it stays in network and it doesn't cross network very much mm-hmm. um so that's kind of number 1 and and then the other is that if we do happen to interact with information that's kind of coming out of out of tribe or out of you know our identity an identity that we um that we feel that we're part of that again it's sort of this hate reading you know this reading to reject and what's ended up happening is that, you know, while it's a, it's a huge opportunity to be able to go find out all sorts of new stuff and really broaden your horizons and your perspectives and really improve that foundation that your beliefs are sitting on, it actually kind of ends up amplifying a lot of the closed mindedness. It amplifies a lot of kind of the entrenchment um, into your own, into your own beliefs. Um, Some of which obviously is happening algorithmically as well, but, Uh, you know, I mean, the algorithms are kind of responding to the human tendencies regardless. So it's really the humans that are driving that.
0: So if I want to go viral on Twitter, just tell people what they want to hear.
1: Well, not only that. So if you really want to, if you really want to hack it and you want to go viral on Twitter, tell people what they want to hear, use really emotionally charged language, like a moral and emotional language in it. So, uh, you know, I mean, if you, if you think about like a, a news article is supposed to use like really nuanced language and they're not supposed to make like moral judgments about things like that, but like go whole hog with all mm-hmm. that stuff. Um, because uh, uh, Brady uh, and Van Bavel actually have shown that for every moral and emotional wor- word that occurs in a tweet, so tweets are short, right? Um, it's 20% more likely to get shared. So do that. And then here's the other hack, put a picture with it.
2: Mm.
1: And if you put a picture with it, uh, people are much more likely to believe that it's true. It, inc- it really increases the kind of the truthiness of what they're looking at. And it's more likely to go viral. So now what we can do is we, and, and also if the messages are simple and they're repetitive, um, you're more likely to go viral. Um, so think about fake news, right? <laughs> like here's the whole problem. And this is part of the reason why I think that like decision education is so important to get into K through 12 as we're really running into this problem with fake news. What does fake news do? Right, it's it's moral and emotional language, very simple messages that really activate your kind of partisan identity. There's pictures, usually pictures that are like quite scary and attention grabbing, along with it. And then because they have these networks of bots, they're repeating that message over and over again. So when we think about like you know Stephen Colbert and truthiness, what's creating truthiness is like repetition, simple messages that are really, act, that are already certifying things that you already believe. Um, and it's, it's also good, like if you think about a fake news story, if you add a whole bunch of detail that's irrelevant to the false claim that you're making, but you just sort of wrap it in some detail. And the reason for that is that one of the sort of hacks that we have as human beings for trying to figure out if something is true or not, is something called processing fluency, mm-hmm. which just simply means how, how easy is it for us to understand? And so that's kind of make the message simple. Um, It turns out that having a picture with something gives us the illusion that we understand the message better. So it increases fluency. And then the repetition thing becomes really important because the more that something repeats, the easier it is to recall. And we use like how easy is the the thing to recall as a proxy for how true it is. So, I mean, it's kind of part part of the, you know, the the sort of brilliance of, I mean, I hate to use the word brilliance here of, of what the Russian interference was, right? Where they had this network of bots that were just repeating these messages over and over again. And research has shown like way back in 1977, Lynn Hasher showed this, that by the third time you hear a false statement, it feels as true to you as the first time you hear a true statement. Hmm. So these problems are gonna persist in terms of the way that we're processing information. How are we interacting with information? You know, and if we're not teaching kids in K through 12, of how to navigate information and how to think about it in a way that's going to help them make better decisions, help them understand what's true and what's not true, which is all part of decision education. You know, I, I, I think, you know, we could be in a lot of trouble, you know, democracy could be in a lot of trouble because of it. So I, I really think it's, it's a really important societal issue, what's happening with decision education.
0: Hmm. They're just pulling on all of my identity strings. Mm-hmm. So how do you shift from hindsight bias to perspective bias?
1: here's the problem for us as decision makers. So you, you remember I said, if we're playing chess and all that somebody knows is that we played and I lost, mm-hmm. they actually do know a lot about my decision making and your decision making. They, they know that my decisions were worse than yours in that game. And they, they can say that with a lot of confidence. That's not true in poker. Well, it turns out that it's also not true in life, but for all sorts of reasons, when we sort of try to do a look back after we have an outcome, we tend to, we have a tendency to do two things. One is called resulting, which is that we sort of correlate. We say what once we know what the quality of the outcome is, like we won or lost, that that tells us what we need to know about the quality of the decision. So if it didn't go well, the decision-making must have been bad. And vice versa. If it went well, the decision-making must have been good. So that's kind of the first problem that happens, this resulting problem. Um, and then the second problem that happens uh, is called hindsight bias, which is this idea that, uh, well, first of all, that the outcome had to happen. That's sort of part of hindsight bias, which is called creeping determinism. But there's something else, which, is called me- which I call memory creep, which is that there's a whole bunch of stuff that always reveals itself to you after the fact and we will tend to remember those things as if they happened beforehand. And you can see that this really causes a problem for learning. And it it really sets up what I call the paradox of experience, which is that we know that experience is necessary for becoming a better decision maker. But the problem is that any individual experience that you might have can interfere with learning for these two reasons. One is that you may like over index on the outcome in deriving the decision quality and decide that a decision that was actually quite poor is excellent because you happen to have a great outcome or that a decision that was um, quite good, wasn't so good because you happened to have a bad outcome. And then also the other thing is it doesn't, we don't really remember what our state of knowledge was at the time that we made the decision. Hmm. And then we'll sort of take really bad lessons from it. So, so there's actually a really great example that kind of brings these two concepts together. And I'll go back to the 2016 election. You know, seeing the election, we, we know that Hillary Clinton lost in, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and um, Michigan, which is, you know, the blue wall, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I don't know about you, but like for the past three and a half years, all I've heard about is her terrible strategy as it relates to those three states. And in fact, how, you know, everybody knew it. And she just did a really big bad job in her decision making about where she was campaigning, particularly because she was campaigning in places like Arizona and North Carolina, but not, not in these blue wall states. So this seems to be just kind of like, you know, this is just sort of accepted as facts now in the U.S. So, you know, I had this suspicion, like I was trying to think about that campaign and I was thinking to myself, you know, gosh, you know, I'm not sure that I remember people talking about this a lot beforehand. So I think I'll go look. So I just did a Google search and I, I Googled Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, I think Clinton 2016 or something like that. And indeed, like, you know, pages and pages and pages of articles came up. From, you know, pundits and political observers and journalists and, you know, all the Silicon Valley people who like to comment on everything, Mm -hmm. they, you know, they were all talking about just, uh, this was a horrible campaign strategy and she did such a bad job and it was her fault that she lost because of her bad strat you know, her bad campaigning tactics. So I thought, okay, there's tons and tons of articles. Let me go look through them at the dates. And the interesting thing is the, the, only, the only articles that I could find that were really, really hypercritical of her, which was like t- hundreds of them, the, the first date that I could find was November 9th, 2016. And that's a really significant date because the election took place on November 8th. Hmm. And as I was trying to find stuff that was really hypercritical of her prior to November 8th, what I actually find was, found was two articles that were really, really critical of Donald Trump for campaigning in, in Pennsylvania in particular. So that seemed very weird to me, right? Like if everybody knew it and everybody knew that her campaign strategy was so terrible in these three states, one would think it would have been written about. Like we're in the middle of a campaign season now. And obviously, like this is incredibly crowdsourced. Like everybody is writing pieces about Biden's campaign strategy and Trump's campaign strategy and so on and so forth. So if everybody knew that her strategy in these three states was so terrible, you would think that there would be something written about it. And in specific, you would definitely think there wasn't a lot written about Trump making a mistake to be in those three states. And yet that, that record just kind of doesn't exist. So this really kind of shows us the collision of, of resulting and hindsight bias and, and how it can really, really mess us up. Mm. So we can see hindsight bias because everybody's saying this was a terrible thing and, we, and I knew it at the time. And my answer to that is if you knew it at the time, you would have been writing about it. And the reason that you don't know it at the time is you're, you're forgetting, you're, you're confusing what revealed itself after the fact that there was a polling error in those three states with what someone could have known before the fact. Because here's a secret. You can't know there's a polling error until the vote's already been taken. Right. So you can only know it after the fact. There was no way for her to know that beforehand. And by the way, there wasn't really like a real mathematical model that could have shown her that because uh, the polling on the national vote was actually pretty dead on the polling in Florida and New Hampshire was really dead on. And what it it seemed to be something particular to these three states that revealed itself after the fact that was quite surprising, but yet people act like they knew this beforehand and that she should have known this beforehand. So that's the hindsight bias piece. And then you can see the resulting piece, right? Which is she lost, so her decision-making must've been bad. So now let's figure out what was bad about her decision-making. And it would take one second to do the thought experiment and say, well, what if she had won? would we three and a half years later being having a discussion about how terrible her campaign strategy was? And I think the answer is no, we would not. So this really kind of shows you kind of all in one ball of wax, how it is that it's really, really difficult to learn from experience when you're sort of trying to go off one outcome and you don't have like a really large data set. The good news about the Clinton example is that it gives us a hint as to how we might solve for this problem. Because here's, here's the key. The reason why I know this thing about the Clinton strategy is because there's a record of what people thought at the time. There's lots and lots and lots of unpacking of her strategy prior to November 8th and then I can see the shift and the difference in the way that people are thinking about it after November 8th. And that is why I know that my mind is trying to take me, take me into a bad place in terms of the lesson that I might take from it. Because, because I can see that there's a difference and that is the key to a great decision process is that when you're making the decision, look, your life isn't Googled. Your life isn't a national campaign where there's going to naturally be this humongous evidentiary record that's going to be created. So, in order to be a great decision maker you need to think about how to create a record of what are the things that i believe what how are those beliefs informing the decision that i'm making what are the options that i think i have available to me how do i think those options might unfold what have i asked myself is there anything else i could find out to fill tetlock's point that would actually significantly change how i might view the options that i have available to me or how my, how, how i might view my own goals, I might, you know, if I knew something, I might change what my goals are, for example, or um, maybe I have different resources than I think, but you're actually sort of thinking through that stuff. And if you have a record of that, now you can actually really help to, to reduce the impact of these things like resulting in hindsight bias, because after you get an outcome, you can go back and look at what you thought, how you thought the world was going to unfold. And then you can ask yourself a really simple question. Did things turn out? in a way that I would have expected. And and what I mean by that is that, like, if if I am thinking about a hand of poker, and I say, well, given what I know, I think that Nick could either have a really amazing hand, like three of a kind, or he might be bluffing. This is something that comes up in poker a lot, that you'll end up kind of narrowing it down to those two things. And there's a reason, which is that when people bluff, they tend to play it. They play the hand as if they have an amazing hand. And the only thing that I have to go on is the way that Nick is playing. So I have it narrowed down to those two things. I think that Nick either has an amazing hand uh, or he's bluffing. If at the end of the hand, you turn up either of those two things, regardless of whether I win or lose the hand, I kind of move on because that's sort of what I expected of the world. But if you turn over something that wasn't in the set of things that I thought were likely, like maybe you just have like the second best pair, which wouldn't go into either of those two categories, Now I need to go dig in and think about why it was that I was thinking about your hand in that way, because it doesn't matter whether I won or lost the hand. What I know is that something unexpected occurred. And that's how we can think about, you know, the Clinton example. Did something really unexpected occur? Well, it turned out it did. There was a polling error in those three states. Like I think Pennsylvania was polling about seven points ahead for Clinton, and obviously Trump ended up winning by a small margin. So now you can see that this unexpected thing happened. You can say, okay, so could she have known about it beforehand? And then you look through the data and you say, no, I mean, Nate Silver didn't know about it. None of the political pundits know about it. So it's probably unreasonable for her to know about it beforehand. So that's okay. So you, then you say, okay, but now that we know that this occurred, can we go back and think about, is there a way that we could see this going forward and include this in our decision process going forward? And I think that the answer to that is yes, that they've sort of figured out why there was this polling error and they're trying to improve polling methods in order to sort of resolve that error. So that's what a really great decision process looks like. Create a record of what you think might happen, make a decision. When the world unfolds, figure out, did it unfold in a way that was unexpected or not? If it unfolded in a way that was unexpected, ask yourself, is this something that I could have known beforehand? If the answer is yes, figure out why and try to include that in your decision process going forward instead of pointing fingers backwards. And if the answer was no, ask yourself, well, if I couldn't have known it beforehand, now having that revealed to me, is there a way that I could know it in the future? If the answer is yes, you incorporate it in your decision. And if the answer is no, you move on. because. You know, as we talked about with game theory or poker or whatever, sometimes there's just stuff you don't know, whether it's coronavirus or whatever. You there's just things you don't know and you have to get comfortable with that when you're making decisions.
0: So we're really becoming a sort of impartial observer and removing emotion from the evidence.
1: That's that's exactly what we're trying to do, is is we're trying to we're trying to remove emotion from the evidence. And then the other thing that we're really, really trying to do when we're examining decision quality is to put ourselves into the same state of knowledge that the person was in at the time they made the decision. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really hard to do because after the fact, a whole bunch of stuff reveals itself to you, including this thing that we think is really, really important, which is the outcome. We know if the thing won or lost. So, like, I, I mean, another example is in, in with thinking, and that's my my previous book. I opened that with the, the Super Bowl play from 2015. So you know, as you recall, like the Seahawks against against the Patriots and uh, Pete Carroll uh, and the Seahawks are on the one yard line of the Patriots and 26 seconds left and they're down by four. So they, you know, obviously if they score a touchdown here, they're most likely going to win the game. And everybody expects uh, Pete Carroll to have Russell Wilson hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch, and that's not what happens. Pete Carroll calls a pass play, and the pass is intercepted. And to this day, you know, it's five years later. Everybody's talking about that as one of the worst calls in in the history of the Super Bowl. But but what we know is that it was one of the worst outcomes in the history of the Super Bowl. And again, it takes like a second to do the thought experiment. So if that pass is caught for the game-winning touchdown, do you think that people five years later are saying that's the worst call in Super Bowl history?
0: It's the best call
1: it's the best call in super bowl history and yet we know that one outcome isn't enough to know anything and and this is really where we get into this problem with the paradox of experience like how are we supposed to learn when our brains are basically doing all these kind of like bait and switches on us Mm -hmm. and making us think that think that that's informative because whether that ball is caught or not the chances of an interception are two percent nonetheless so you really have to say was it? were you willing to risk a 2% chance of an interception for the war rewards that you might get from that play? And that, that answer holds regardless of whether the ball is actually intercepted or not.
0: And something we have to talk about is the difference between making decisions because of the group we belong to instead of what we believe to be true. Is this one of the most common pitfalls you see in your world?
1: It's such an incredibly huge pitfall. I mean, certainly we can see that in politics, right? The way that people process information is very much dependent on the group that they're in. Two people can have the exact same information about anything, like whether it's mass or hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir or social distancing or, or whether you should open bars or, or schools. And what you can see is that there's a really big effect of the group that you belong to in terms of how you process that information. Um, so I think back in June, there was a Wall Street Journal poll that, that showed that of people who were not wearing masks, I think there were 12 times more likely to be Trump supporters, for example. So you can see this influence of, of the group that you belong to on the way that you're, you're processing information and how you're deciding about it. But it doesn't need to be something as big as, as like a political party to get you to do this. This happens just in your friend groups.
0: Maria Konnikova says in her new book that people fail to see what the world is telling them when that message isn't one they want to hear. Can you tell me more about your approach to recognizing and dismantling these hidden biases?
1: Yeah. So first of all, everybody should get Maria's book, The Biggest Bluff. It's amazing. She is an incredible writer and just an absolutely A plus human. Um, and it's it's really just such it's such a good book and it's so beautifully written. Um, and it's such an amazing exploration of like luck and and how that influences your life. She also happens to be, besides being an incredible writer who used to write for The New Yorker, uh, she does have a PhD um, in psychology um, from Columbia University. So she's like not a slouch on the academic side. I just mm-hmm. want to say that. Um, but basically, what, look, here, here's what she's referring to is I think that as decision makers, we have this idea. I have a belief, but if someone showed me something that, would correct the belief. Obviously, I would correct my belief. Mm -hmm. In other words, we think that we sort of uh, process information in an objective way. um, And then having processed that information objectively, um, we decide what we want to believe or not. And that's actually not true. In general, what we do is uh, our beliefs create, we can sort of think about our beliefs are like the fabric at which our identity is woven out of. Because if you think about it, like, who are you? But the things that you believe. I mean, that's really what forms your identity groups or otherwise, right? Like Mm -hmm. your, your beliefs are forming your identity. Now, one of those beliefs has to do with group identity, but, um, but in general, anything that you believe strongly is going to, is going to form this fabric. And so most of our, our, the way that we think about the world is actually what's called identity protective. So, um, Dan Kahn over at Yale talks about identity, protective cognition which is that we reason about information in order to protect the beliefs that we have in order to certify them as true. So when it comes to reasoning about information, our our beliefs are really in the driver's seat. And this gets down to really a problem that um, for anyone who's read Thinking Fast and Slow from Daniel Kahneman uh, is really a problem about the inside view. And the inside view is just sort of reasoning about the world through our own perspective, driven by the things that we already believe and the experiences that we personally have had. And you can see that this is where most cognitive biases are gonna live, right? So if you think about something as simple as confirmation bias, what I'm trying to do is confirm the things that I already believe, that's an inside view problem. And so what we really wanna do in terms of improving our decision-making is to get to what Kahneman calls the outside view, meaning what does the world look like sort of outside of our own perspective, like independent of our own perspective. And and we can think about it in two parts. One is kind of what's true of the world in general, independent of anybody's perspective. So that'd be like the earth is round. Mm -hmm. But then, so those would be facts, right? Like two plus two is four. And then we have, um, how would somebody else view my situation? That's also part of the outside view. How would another human being view the situation that I'm in or the information that I'm looking at? what we know is like data aren't truth you have to model data in order to sort of come to some approximation of what's true so you get data and then you sort of think about the data and you try to come up with some model of the world and two people looking at the exact same data can come up with very different conclusions about it and it's really really helpful when you're trying to discipline all the problems of the inside view which have to do with the circular reasoning that we get into like where we reason to support our beliefs to, to be able to see the world from outside of that, to really explore what's true of the world in general or to access other people's opinions and beliefs and perspectives. Because, you know, if we go back to what I was talking about, about this universe of stuff you don't know, and you want to sort of be colliding with that in a way that's going to sort of maximally get you to, to collide with inf- new information and, and corrective information to broaden our foundation a lot of that stuff that's going to be really helpful is going to live in other people's heads. So we have to access what's in other people's heads. Now, I already told you that the way that we mostly interact with each other is not to do that. So we mostly interact with the people who agree with what we believe and the conversation is talking about how right we are. So we want to kind of shift that paradigm. And the simplest way to do that is to interact with people in a way where they won't know that they're disagreeing with you. So, you know, like, what do I mean by that? If I were to ask your opinion on something, something really simple, generally what I'm going to do is when I ask for your opinion, I'm probably going to tell you my opinion in front of it. Mm-hmm. So I might say something like, you know, uh, so I just watched the show Perry Mason on HBO. I think, I think it was on HBO. Um, so I might say something to you like, I watched Perry Mason. I thought it was really cool that we saw his journey from... PI to lawyer. And then I thought that it was great that he was more of a flawed character than sort of the Raymond Burr. You know, so I might tell you all this stuff that I think. And then what I'll say to you is, what'd you, did you watch it? What did you think of it?
0: And I'm so much more likely to agree with you. And, and maybe just because I don't want to hurt your feelings if I didn't like it.
1: Right. Maybe you don't want to hurt my feelings. Like, certainly if I'm, think about this if I'm telling you something I did in a poker hand and you consider me to be a subject matter expert, you're not going to want to disagree with me. And not only are you, good, are you not going to want to disagree with me, but you, you may actually change your mind while I'm talking. Mm-hmm. And then I don't get to find out what you originally would have thought, right? Mm-hmm. So, so how do we want to actually interact with people? Well, I would say, did you watch Perry Mason? And you say yes. And I would say, so what do you think of the show? You know, if I'm asking about a poker hand, I'd say, instead of saying somebody raised in front of me and I looked at Ace Queen and, and I decided to raise, do you th- what do you think of that play? Should I have raised? I just say, I, someone raised in front of me a ID's queen, what do you think I should have done in that situation? And the interesting thing is that if you try this in your real life, you're gonna, two things are, you're gonna find out are true. One is that one of the most common responses you get is what did you think? <laughs> and it really speaks to this, we really wanna be groupish, right? We really wanna be sort of feeling like we're bonded in agreement with the people that we're talking to and so people are loathe to offer up their own opinion prior to kind of offering their, you know, their opinion first. Um, You can actually see this with like, like little kids, you know, where someone will say like, you know, do you like Animal Crossing? And then the person will say, well, I don't know. Do you, you know, the other kid will say, I don't know. Do you, and then they'll say, you, I asked you first. (laughs) So it's just like this desire to just like, Oh, I need to know what the other person thinks before I open my mouth because I want to socially belong. So you're going to get a lot of people saying like, well, what did you think first? And it just really resists the urge to tell them and say, no, I was asking for your opinion. Then what you're going to find out is that the people around you actually hold very different perspectives than you thought they did. And they actually differ from your perspectives more than you thought. And this is something that should not make you sad. This is something that should make you happy. Because honestly, the places where we agree are uninteresting. Like you and I both agree the earth is round, like who cares? Yeah where we disagree, where there's dispersion, where, where our opinions diverge from one another. That's the really interesting stuff to explore. Sorry. That's the really interesting stuff to explore. Kind of getting back to the Phil Tetlock quote that you were talking about. Like the exciting stuff is when you find out that someone holds a different perspective than you did do. And it's surprising and you get to find out what their rationale for that is and why and What's the information that's driving that perspective or that belief that they have or or where did they find that fact out? It just gives you the opportunity to improve your knowledge. And and here's the trade-off that you're getting. Yeah. Is it not fun in the moment to find out that you thought the earth was flat and it's actually round and this, this thing that you believe so strongly isn't Is not actually true? Does that feel like an injury to your identity in that moment? You know, I suppose so. But what you're getting in exchange is that if you have a belief that's not accurate, that belief is going to inform every decision you make in in the future. So the more accurate your beliefs are, obviously that's going to improve your decision quality because the inputs in your decisions are going to continually get better. So it might be painful this second to change a belief that you have. But think about what that does for you over the course of the rest of your life. That that the input in your decisions, the input into your decisions is getting more and more accurate. Like that, that's an amazing trade to make. And as Maria Kanakova points out, it's just not a trade that naturally we tend to make. But if we can create a decision process and a decision environment for ourselves that actually sort of reinforces that trade-off for us in a good way you know, we're going to, then like now we're really talking, now we're really moving our decisions forward.
0: The goal then isn't necessarily to be proud of our beliefs, but just to be sure of them.
1: In the moment that we make a decision, if you have a good process, you should have high conviction in the decision that you're making. Mm -hmm. In other words, you're basically saying, given the information that I have in this moment and the time that I have, and the process that I have, I really believe that this is the best decision that I can be making. That does not mean that I think it's the right decision. I just think it's the best one that I can make in these circumstances. And then as soon as you've made the decision, then you, you hold, then you're really open-minded to new information that might change the, that type of decision for you in the future. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea of, of, I'm totally fine making a decision when I'm uncertain, because that's the only type of decision I can make. But then what I need to not do is, because I've made that decision, continually look at the world in a way that will reinforce the rightness of the decision that I made. Because I'm not viewing it as right or wrong in the first place. I'm viewing it as this is the best thing that I can do right now, given that there's lots of uncertainty. And as soon as I've made that, I'm then going to keep my mind open to new stuff that might come my way. And I'm going to make sure that I interact with people in a way that reveals what they believe as much as possible. And that's on me, not them. I have to talk to them in a way that allows them to disagree with me.
0: All right, Annie. If you could have a drink or a coffee with anyone in history, who would you choose and why?
1: That's a really good question. I would love to talk to a female, like computer scientist in like the forties or fifties. You know, somebody, somebody who was working on the the, the mathematics and uh, or maybe the engineering that went into creating computers eventually. Um, the reason is that first of all, I'd love to talk to a woman who is doing that regardless and kind of understand the the history of computers, but also, man, that's a male dominated world, you know, and what is, what was that like for them, you know, to what you did, I'd like, I'd like to just sit down with a female firefighter, right. And really talk to them about what that experience looks like for them. Um, you know, something obviously I've thought about for myself a lot and I, I just, I just, you know, I, I'm, I probably don't know what their name is. You know, I just want to sit down and and talk to somebody who did that. So it's someone who, whose name I don't know. Let's put it that way. I
0: love it. Congratulations on the new book, how to decide if people want to find you, they can go to annieduke.com. And while they're there, sign up for Annie's newsletter. They can follow you on Twitter at Annie Duke, and I'll have links to how to decide in the show notes where else do you want people to go to find you.
1: Uh, You know, I think you actually pretty much got it. (laughs) Those are the places to find me. I I will add that if you go to anniduke.com, there's there's a contact form and you can write me. And I'm always happy to hear from people who have listened to me think some of of, uh, my best ideas and my best corrections of my own ideas have come from readers, Uh, you know, writing to me and giving their perspectives. That really makes me think about the world in a new way. So I really welcome communication from people who are familiar with my work. So I hope people will take advantage of that at annaduke.com.
0: Perfect. Annie, thank you so much for the conversation.
1: Thank you so much.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy, And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shakoba.